Our scripture reading comes from Matthew 6, verses 9 through 13, and is found on your pew Bible there, page number 811. Pray then like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. The word of the Lord. So if you haven't already, you need to start to have some conversations with your friend groups about loneliness. Um, I could quote you stats all day long, but in America, and actually really the rest of the West... We are experiencing what appears to be an epidemic of people reporting a powerful loneliness. And, you know, every now and then someone from the generation upcoming expresses this longing and this pain sort of in this direction. There was a young lady by the name of Marina Keegan who was a bright young lady who, before tragically dying in a car accident, delivered an address to her graduating class at Yale where she said this. She said, we don't have a word for the opposite of loneliness. But if we did, I could say that that's what I want in life. What I'm grateful and thankful to have found at Yale and what I'm scared of losing when we wake up tomorrow and leave this place. It's not quite love and it's not quite community. It's just this feeling that there are people, an abundance of people who are all in this together, who are on your team, who when the check is paid, you stay at the table. I love that image at the very end. But you can feel her pain, right? Well, the more that I start thinking about loneliness in this generation, and frankly, my own struggle with it, the more my thoughts have turned to the topic of prayer, which I'm guessing was not the direction you thought I was going with that. But it occurs to me that one of the problems of loneliness is, is knowing that someone is there. If someone's there, then I'm not lonely. But here's the question. If I have God, then why am I still lonely? This is a really serious question for me. Years ago, Brian and I were on a, um, an airplane headed out to uh, Denver, of all places, and <clears throat> he handed me a little book called Prayer by a guy named Michael Reeves. And there was a quote from that little book that really struck with me and stayed with me when it went like this. Reeves says, when you default to thinking of prayer as an abstract activity, a thing to do, the tendency is to focus on the prayer as an activity, which makes it boring. Instead, focus on the one to whom you are praying. Reminding yourself of who you're coming before is a great help against distraction and changes the prayer. Well, for whatever reason, this was a real ray of hope for me and the launch of what I would consider to be a lot of growth for me when thinking about pray prayer because it helped me realize that trying to pray can be like the worst disincentivizer to pray. Somewhere along the way, you forget, maybe never occurred to me, that prayer is about connecting to Jesus. And that connecting was what I was made for. I want and I need to know that someone's there. And then I might know what my place is in the universe. Prayer is supposed to address this ultimate ache with God's presence. But how does that happen? Well, we're looking at the Gospel of Matthew and how Jesus was the ultimate hero of this story, and therefore of our lives as well. And we've been looking at this big sermon on the mount and some of the big things he throws out as his major ministry priorities. And in chapter 6, he starts talking about the religious establishment and how they don't pray. They actually 
put on their prayers. It's a show. It's inauthentic. It's a, it's a hypocritical show for them. But Jesus' followers, he says, are those who are going to pray for an entirely different reason. Why? Well, remember, Jesus, we've said in weeks past, is, his, is in his life retelling the story of Israel in his own life, and he's overcoming their failures through everything that he does. Well, at the beginning of the Jewish story, you find this, this idea of the Garden of Eden, where God is with his people, walking with them in the cool of the day. In other words, the original design for humans to address their loneliness was to come through their interaction with God. And the means by which Jesus intends for us to achieve that is through prayer. That's my premise this morning. Prayer is what it means to be with Jesus. But how does that work? Well, we could build a whole series on that topic. But for our purposes this morning, I just, I just want to be transparent about my own journey. Because in my own study, I found in the Lord's uh, prayer here some wonderful keys that if you can grasp them and wrap your mind around them, they give us a lot of assistance in thinking about what prayer is and maybe addressing loneliness. Three big points this morning. We'll look at the familiarity, the perspective, and then the celebration of prayer. Let me dive into that first one, familiarity. Look, almost every single commentator read is going to make note of the fact that when Jesus says, begin the prayer with our Father, our Father who art in heaven, that would have been a very strange, almost offensive way of talking to his original listeners. Because if you go back, and apparently in the whole of the first 39 books of the Bible, what we call the Old Testament, God is referred to as Father like 14 times. And most of those 14 times, they're referring to God as Father of nations, not as individuals. Well, then you go to the New Testament. In the Gospels alone, God is referred to as Father 60 times. So Jesus is clearly bringing something to say that the difference between what I am bringing and what other religions are doing is, is that if you know me, you can know your creator as your father, which is fascinating. If you think about it, you know, when you're walking down the street, there's only certain things that you can get away with saying to a stranger. You ever thought about this? You walk up to a stranger and you can say things kind of like, excuse me, I'm lost. Can you help me? You might say, I'm sorry, do you have the time? That's appropriate to a stranger. But of course, you would never walk up to a stranger and say something like, hey, do you mind if we talk a little bit about how my father passed away just a, a couple of years ago? You would never say that. That's inappropriate there. But what Jesus is saying is, when you come to approach my father, you are not approaching a stranger. You're on family terms with him. If God is your creator, which he is, or he's only your king, which he is, then you won't necessarily be drawn to pray to him. But if he is as familiar as a daddy, <laughs> Jesus is saying prayer is easy. When Jesus called God Father, people would have been shocked by that. Now, we're back to Reeves' quote, though. Thinking about prayer, though, in many ways, prayer as an activity just kind of ruins it. I mean, think about the last time you thought about the idea of prayer. My guess is for many of you, if you're like me, when you think about prayer, it kind of has an immediate guilt association, you know what I'm talking about, where you think to yourself, oh, goodness, I mean, honestly, I'm just not that spiritual like so-and-so. She always talks about praying all the time. I don't know, just not one of those super Christian people. And of course, if that's sort of your approach to it, then my guess is you probably are not very successful in praying or, know very, or have it be a major part of your life. Nobody wants to do that. 
In the 80s and 90s, it was a sitcom I'm sure you're all familiar with called Cheers, <clears throat> where it had this very catchy tune at the beginning, right? The chorus of which went, you want to go where everybody knows your name. Well, there was a character named Norm who every time he would walk into the bar, the whole bar would say, Norm, and celebrate his entrance. And here's the deal. Norm was always at the bar. Now, you may say that's because he was an alcoholic. Could be. I don't know. But it also might have been that you want to be where everybody knows your name and that when you show up, people are glad to see you. So when you show up in the presence of God, is he glad to see you? Because if not, my guess is I'm not a very good prayer. I mean, think about that. Let's think about the next party that you go to and someone shows up that you're kind of at odds with. You know they're mad at you. You know, they, you've been an offense to them. What do you do? You hide from them. I just can't deal with this right now. In other words, until you remove that funk in between you, there's no way really to enjoy each other's company. Look, we have to address, before you begin to talk about prayer, the posture that we think God takes when we go to pray, pray to him. Does that make sense? What do we believe he's thinking? Because for a lot of us, depending on the journey you've been on, oftentimes we can think of going to God and his reaction to it goes something like this. Oh, it's you. Well, it's good to see. It's been a while now, hasn't it? I mean, it seems like my watch has stopped here. Like it, it's been like a month, right? Oh, but I guess now that something's going wrong, you want to come talk to me? That's the nature of this relationship. <laughs> but I do think when Jesus says, I want you to begin by praying our Father, he simply wants you to entertain the thought that maybe, just maybe, God is not quite as passive-aggressive as Les Newsome is. Maybe. How do I vision, how do I envision him seeing me when I go to see him? By the way, before we move on to the next point, I think this is also the reason why he focuses so much on forgiveness at the end of the prayer, right? Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors or in like manner. Hey, by the way, that's kind of a dangerous prayer because you're praying, Lord, forgive me in the same way or like unto as I forgive others. So God is, you're praying, asking God, Treat me the way I treat others. <laughs> Anybody want to just kind of stop and be like, uh, everybody's forgiven uh, on my, on, from, from my perspective, right? We all want to do that because we know. Until we deal, Jesus says, with the sort of tension in the room, the awkwardness in the room, you're not going to approach me with familiarity. So get rid of whatever's causing that. Work your way through whatever's causing that or else you won't even start praying. Familiarity, that's what I mean by that first point. Second thing is this, is perspective. This is where I kind of think it gets a little more interesting because Jesus then tells us right out of the gate to focus on his kingdom. That should be no surprise by now because Jesus has already summed up the totality of his mission by saying it's a message of the kingdom. Now in verse 10 he says, when you pray your kingdom come, here's what you mean. You mean by your kingdom coming, meaning for things to be on earth like they are in heaven. So what does Jesus have in his mind? Jesus says there's two realms in reality. There is heaven and there is earth. But as soon as we say that, the problems start. And here's the reason why. Because for most part, we tend to think of heaven and earth as it appears to us in the following illustration. Heaven is this, or earth is this place where I dwell for a time, but then at the moment of my death, I sort of journey from the earth off into oblivion at either heaven or hell. That's heaven and earth, right? That's how we understand it. But here's the problem. That's not exactly the way the Bible pictures heaven and earth. 
And our good friends over at the Bible Project, I think, put together the nicest illustration about how God talks about these two realities. Because in the Bible, heaven and earth are actually not separate spaces. Distinct, for sure. But they overlap in many ways. Which means that there's no way to drive God out of this world, by the way. But what we'll see, and of course we can make it in motion, we see that that left-hand circle is moving to the right. There's a sense in which the story of the Bible is the story of heaven's movement, where heaven and earth are on the collision course while heaven invades earth. It's taking it back over again. And heaven is not just reclaiming the world, but actually restoring human beings to who they were actually made to be and who God actually calls them to be. Heaven and earth. Which, by the way, is huge in thinking about prayer. Look, face it, when you pray, why is it that your mind wanders the way in which it does? Especially the way in which it never does when you're talking face-to-face to a friend. I think the answer is because heaven just seems remote. There's no handholds. There's, there's, no, there's no way we can feel like we have a hold of it. But does it not mean that we need to change our perspective? I mean, seriously. We have to ask this question from the beginning. What kind of world do you live in? What is it like? And I realize there's lots of ways to answer that question. But for a Christian, we have to say, to say it is to say that I live in a place that is inhabited by God's space that while invisible is in the process of invading I've been praying the Lord's Prayer for years, asking for that to happen. May it be on earth as it is in heaven, as it begins to unleash. That's the prayer. In other words, God is not remote. (laughs) He's not. Paul actually has a very interesting sample prayer in Ephesians chapter 3, where at one point in this prayer, he says, I want you to pray this way, that he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Hey, do me a favor for one second. Pretend that you're not super religious this morning for a moment. What is Paul talking about when he says that Jesus might dwell in your inner being? Or he's in your heart? Is this just the way religious people talk? Well, I don't know that there's a topic I've thought more about than this one because it fascinates me. And as I've thought about it long and hard, I think I've come to a conclusion that what the Apostle Paul is talking about is an encouragement for us to use our imaginations in prayer. Pause for effect. (laughs) Because some of you are going to freak out. And the first reason you're going to freak out is because you make a mistake. You mistake that just because something is accessed using your imagination that the things so accessed are themselves imaginary. That is not the case. Because our imagination is nothing more than a faculty of our soul. It's this powerful uh, tool that God has given us to be able literally to make images in our mind's eye. You ever thought about this? Your imagination is so powerful because you can actually see things that are not there. My opinion is you did it this morning. You woke up this morning and you got an image, a picture of something that did not exist. And that was you being at church. So in your mind, you actually saw yourself getting ready. You saw yourself in a car driving down Highway 6 or 7 or whatever. You saw yourself screaming at your kids to be quiet in the back of the car. You imagine the people that you might meet there, right? 
And what happened? You woke up and then you started walking in the midst of that vision that you saw in your mind. That is what the imagination does. And here's the point. That is the place where Jesus meets his people. Because our imaginations are his gift to us. Now, the other half of you are freaking out as well. Because you're being like, whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> okay, but don't you see how it's really possible to use my imagination and dream up all kinds of things that God could or may should be that he's really not? That are just uh, projections of my own vain imagination on his character. And you know what? You are exactly right. That is well within the realm of possibility, dare we say, likelihood. But what that means then is that our goal as Christians is to have our imaginations so disciplined and chastened even by the actual revealed word of God, that is by what he says I am actually like, so that my imaginations actually access him for real. Look, once we begin to see our imaginations sanctified by word and by spirit, there's this whole new perspective opening up for us. We begin to see things that I didn't see. And no, I'm not talking about visions. I'm talking about simply apprehending Christ, that he walks with me, that he wipes my tears away, that he dwells with me, that he consoles me. I defy you to go through the Psalms and see the way King David describes what it's like for God to draw near he uses concrete images to show that. He uses concrete images used by his imagination. I had a pastor friend of mine who said he was going through an especially difficult time. And he said, you know, I actually had to play a couple of rounds of golf with Jesus before I worked it all out. Now, does that sound weird to you? That's weird. Nobody, Jesus golfing with you. That's irreverent. Okay, but how does he draw near? Is there a place? Is there a way? Is there a way in which I, I sort of, a place where I apprehend Christ, disciplined by only what the word says about himself, where he meets with me? Because if not, I probably need a perspective change, a shift in the way that I'm thinking about prayer. Which leads me to the last point, and that is what I'm calling celebration. Because we've got to deal with that word hallowed. It's the only word in the Lord's Prayer when you were growing up, you had no idea what it meant hallowed be thy name. What does that mean? To be hallowed just means to treat something as if it's sacred uh, or ultimate or like that. Something that's your primary concern. You've set it apart as being different, right? It's a, something that's hallowed is a, is a supreme beauty in your life. And so Jesus says at the very outset, you've got to establish early on that, that, that this is what you have hallowed. This is what is primary to you. Remember, back in verse 6, Jesus has said, look, but when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. Interesting. Why does Jesus want to get us thinking about what we do in secret? Well, I think it's because in that place, we find the best place to discover if we're really praying in the way Jesus wants us to pray. You never discover stuff about prayer until you figure out what you're doing in secret. Let me put it in, this, in these terms. When do you find yourself most motivated to pray? Because if you think about it, people typically pray only when their ultimate treasure in life is at stake. You know, in verse 5, Jesus explains that the religious people of his day treasure the public acclaim that comes from being a person of status. 
Jesus said, great. If that's what you're down with, that's what you're going to get. But how about other prayers? If I only pray when things go bad, if I only pray when I'm in trouble, if I only restart my devotional life when I begin to have problems in my, in my life, what does that say? What does that say about me? Because to, Jesus is trying, I think, to teach us here to say, if you want to know your primary concern in life, look at what you do in secret. Look at where your mind drifts when it has nothing else to think about. Follow where your daydreams take you. A new house, a, 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 a dream vacation, a better relationship than the one you're in now, a, a, adoring, doting children, financial success. Maybe it's a hobby, could be fame. Because if, if what you adore is not God, then you're only going to pray when that thing is in jeopardy. That's the idea. But you know what we don't pray for? What we don't pray for is the simple pleasure of being in God's presence. Why? Because it's not a pleasure to be in God's presence. <laughs> right? Let's be honest at least. He's not my treasure. And so what Jesus is saying is when we pray this part of prayer, take a time out and consider what it is that I really adore. Because if it isn't God, if it's, if it's something else, then I've got some thinking to do, don't I? What I do in secret tells me what my real God is. Look, here's the point. Jesus wants Christians to pray because their ultimate treasure is God. She delights in thinking about him. He has found something captivating and unfathomable, even inexpressible in God. Now, look, I'm going to grant you a second to be unspiritual and say, I have no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> I'm kind of a practical person, Les. I don't I don't do that kind of touchy-feely religious thing that you seem all cooked up about right now, uh, that I would ever like daydream about being alone with God or be excited about the prospect of spending time with him. What would I ever, what would ever have to be true in order for me to desire God in that way? Now that's a good question. And are you ready for the fun punchline? He tells you. Because what he says is, hallowed be thy name. That's the kicker. Now look, a little quick study here. The word name is not just the way the Bible says, here's how to designate one human being for the other. A name was actually the fullness of your character. It was your reputation. It's what you were known for. This is why places like Psalm chapter 9 verse 10 says this, those who know your name, listen, will trust in you for you, Lord, have never forsaken those who seek you. That's it. The name, knowing the name, leads you to know that he's one who will never forsake you. You know, when I went very early on in my ministry in, on campus, there was a young lady who approached me who was distinctive because she had grown up in church. I mean, breakfast, lunch, and dinner, you know, three days a week, whatever it was. She just was very spiritually minded home. And I remember her confiding in me her freshman year saying, you know what? I really have struggled with this at age 18. I, I think about God and I'm kind of like, do I really like, love him? Like love him, like in the sense of affection for him. I'm like, I don't know if I do. The reason why it struck me as interesting was I thought, uh, might be a good thing to think about. Seems a little strange to me <laughs> that this is the first time that it's coming up. To the affection for God. Have I found anything that I might actually say was admirable, desirable, 
joyful in him. Because what, what the psalmist is saying is, if you know God's reputation, you're going to trust him. That's it. Because he's never forsaken those who seek him. Never forsaken them. To delight in God for who he is, is to get a grasp on the fact that he won't forsake you. You're going to be hard-pressed to find a psalm that doesn't include the word hesed. I've talked about this a jillion times. Unfailing love, the love that will not let me go, this binding, unrelenting love that rescues me over and over and over again. That is what has captivated the vision of the prayer. Where else would I go? He has rescued me. Back in uh, January of 2019, there was a, a writer for uh, The Atlantic who started interviewing uh, nurses in a local hospital to find out what men say at the moment of their death, like right before they go. They're on the deathbed. It's the end. What do they say? And he said how shocked he was that the nurses were almost, there was no hesitation. They're like, oh, happens all the time. When that man meets that moment over and over again, he cries out for his mother. He says, mama. That's one of the last things he ever says. Now, I'm sure we could play armchair psychiatrist with that for a, a couple of things. And I also realize it's a morbid thought on a you know, Sunday morning in September. But here's my question. Why, why do you think that is? Could it be that at the moment of a human being's final, the last end of the rope, the nadir of where they might exist, the mind, the human mind, is searching. It's searching for the only places where they found respite, where they found affection. And that naturally he associates with his mother. Is that possible? You know what's crazy about this? Jesus had a similar experience at his death. Don't believe me? Bear with me here for a second. One of the last utterances that we know Jesus spoke was from Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You know that passage? He's quoting from Psalm 22. Well, if you go back and look at that quote in context, you know what the verses right after it say? <laughs> Take a look at this. Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breasts. On you was I cast from my birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there is none to help. You see, even Jesus, at the nadir of his own incredible mission that he's putting on before his father, is drawn to a psalm that happens to mention motherly love. Why? Because a Christian finds their chief delight in the same affection that draws a man to his mama. Same thing. That's the analogy. Why? Because with her, there was the human analog of constancy. There was comfort. <laughs> Why do we make up phrases that go like this? You know what? That guy's got a face that only a mother could love. That's supposed to be funny. She didn't react to it at all. But of course she loves your face. She's your mother. And that's where the mind goes. And what Jesus is saying is, when you say, hallowed be my, thy name, you're looking for my reputation. And you want to know what my reputation is? If you focus on my name, you're going to find constancy. You're going to find comfort. You're going to find that love that will not let you go, no matter how many times you've messed it up. 
including this morning. Which brings us here. So it's worth asking ourselves the question, do, do I have anything to praise God about? If not, why not? Is it because I haven't found anything praiseworthy? Maybe the problem with my prayer is not my technique, it's not my, you know, how did I do this properly? Maybe the problem is, is I don't know the reputation of the one to whom I'm praying. But maybe somewhere there, there's something fascinating, there's something exhilarating, there's something intoxicating. So don't walk away being like, oh, be a better prayer person today. No. Walk out thinking, well, that's kind of curious. I would never have thought about God that way. Hey, that curiosity, that's the best first step there. It's the best first step into a life of prayer. Would that we would be known as people like that. Let's pray. So, Lord Jesus, we close our eyes because here we in our imaginations meet you. We do pray that those visions that we get of you are disciplined by your word. But regardless, we don't want that to keep us from being here, speaking to you, asking for your forgiveness, asking for your grace, but also asking for your comfort, asking for your nearness, asking for your guidance, asking for your spirit to strengthen us asking for relief from our hurt, asking for understanding for our confusion. Father, we're here, we're with you, but we need to know more so of how you are with us. And so if maybe we walked out of here this morning seeking that, it would be a time well spent. Would you do that for us? For we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.